Welcome back to our second episode of the Speech Uncensored podcast. We're going to be finishing up our conversation with Jen Hurst as we discuss the trach and vent population in long-term acute care hospitals. In this session, we're going to go a little bit more in depth on evaluation and treatment with this population. Without further ado, here is the rest of your podcast. What's a typical evaluation? I think you mentioned it a little bit Mm -hmm. with a trach patient. You start with finger occlusion. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe try to see if they can get any voicing. Um, When do you know when you need to stop? Um, You look at the O2 saturation, and it's going to alarm at 90% um, oxygen. So if it gets below 90%, that's telling you that they are not oxygenating well for whatever reason. And so you take the passimere valve off. Usually it's a dilution of the um, air from the upper airway. It's just not, they're not fully breathing in um, from the upper airway. Um, So they're not getting oxygenated well enough. Sometimes it's secretions, but um, that's when you know to take it off. You can take it off if they become very labored in their breathing. Um, And then sometimes they will have this huge panic on their eyeballs. (laughs) Their eyeballs get huge and they clearly cannot breathe. And then... While the passimere valve is on? While the passimere valve is on. And this is... This is bad. It, it's not supposed to happen. It's because you didn't deflate the cuff, and they oh, cannot exhale. Oh, oh, yes. Okay, yeah, that would be quite But scary. the oxygenation. That's like the one thing I remember from <laughs> yeah. grad school. They're always like, "Is there a, find a cuff. If there's a cuff, deflate, deflate the cuff. Yeah. And I'm like engraving that into my brain, like carving it in. Yeah. Like, do not kill a patient. Like, you won't. I mean, you will see it on their face. Like, they're clearly struggling. Mm-hmm. And, but their O2 um, is fine. It won't change. So, and then you'll take it off and there'll be this huge of air. Sometimes they have the same experience, even though the cuff is deflated. It's just that the size of the trach in the trachea is so big, they can't move air up around it. And so they have that same experience that they can't exhale. um, Oh, what's the name for it when they do, like, get the smaller trach sizes? They switch it out. Downsizes. but (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Is there some kind of fancy medical term for it? No, they just get downsized. Mm -hmm. Um, Would they go through that process at the LTAC as well as part of their whole rehab and weaning stages? Do do they do that when they're on a vent or is that like that's later? A little bit later. Yeah, because at that point you're not really trialing the speaking valve. So Mm -hmm. you don't really know that you need to downsize it. Usually if you see a little lady with like a size shyly... Um, cuffed size 8 shyly cuffed trach you know you're probably going to have to downsize because that's just a lot of material in that little lady's neck what are the sizes um it goes 8 6 and then I think there is a 4 but we don't usually go that far down so there there are only basically two kind of three sizes of shyly then there's like a bavona and they have like different sizings that correlate the hospital where I work with trachs, they just mostly use Shiley's. But sometimes we get patients transferred with, like, a Bavona. Um, so. so Same deal, different brand. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So somebody who's small, petite, you mm-hmm. would kind of, going in, want them to have that smaller trach size. You kind of know, like, they're not going to tolerate the speaking valve until we downsize. Mm. And 
you have a conversation with the pulmonologist, like, yeah, I tried the speaking valve. It's just way too big on her. So she probably needs a six. And they'll say something like, okay, well, she's winning pretty good, but we need a few more days, so we'll downsize her in a few days. Um, they like, for some reason, I think it's just the size, um, to have patients on uh, size eights for when they're on the ventilator. But I think they can be on six. I know they can be on sixes, um, but it just helps with the pressures um, if they have like a bigger trach in there with the balloon fully mm-hmm. okay. inflated. All right. Yeah. Um, if you're looking at a trach, where uh, can you find what size it is? Um, there's a little, so you have the little part that's sticking out, the tube that's sticking out, Mm -hmm. and then there's like a plate, it's plastic, that kind of rests against their neck, and on either side of the plate, it will say cuff or no cuff, the brand, Mm -hmm. and then the size. Okay. Now, another way you know if it's cuffed or not is if there's a little clear, very, very thin tube with like a little balloon on the end of it hanging down from that as well. Yes. Because that's what they'll pump or use to deflate and mm-hmm. deflate. Sometimes you're like digging in there and you're like, I cannot find this balloon. And then you look on the little neck plate that <laughs> says like, no cuff. No and cuff. you're like, okay, well. Will it really say no why. cuff or does it ever say like uncuffed? Um, I think sometimes it has a picture of a cuff with a circle and a line through it. And then oh. it says no cuff. Okay. So I've seen both. Yeah. All right. Cool. Yeah. All right. Yeah. That was helpful. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I had a question on here about, like, the stakeholders. Like, when you're working with trach infant patients, uh-huh. I really feel like you've covered that. You're talking with a pulmonologist. Uh-huh. You're very closely tied with RT. Mm-hmm. Um, do, for the swallowing side of things, do you ever, like, get with dietitians? Oh, that's one thing. Like, in this position, in this new hospital where I met you, mm-hmm. everyone is so segmented in their own group. Okay, good. I'm glad it's not just me. No, like... <laughs> At the other hospital, the dietitian and the speech therapist, their desks are, our desks are right next to each other. And a lot of times it's, okay, they're on this really expensive, weird tube feeding. We can't get access to it. We, can, we either need to buy more tube feeding or are you going to get them eating soon? Mm-hmm. And so we kind of coordinate that or we'll say, like, you know, they're on this, like, low-sodium diet, but they need mechanical soft. And so we'll kind of put our heads together about what, would be a feasible dinner option for them. Um, I mean, it's so collaborative there. And it's partially because it's smaller, Uh but it's partially because it, I mean, the patients are so complicated that you... You need that. Yeah. Face-to-face, one-on-one. Right. If if the dietitian moves one thing, it's going to affect something I do. Mm -hmm. And so that's happened enough where it's just like, okay, let's move in sequence so we don't disrupt this whole patient care situation. That sounds amazing. I've, um, whenever I do go up to the acute floors, um, I'll find the dietitian and ask her questions. Usually, we we just cross paths. Yeah, and we check in, and and she'll see me up there, and she'll ask like, "Oh, do you have this patient in room X Y Z?" Because she might have a question for me about something. So like, it happens. Yeah, but I think their offices are actually like down in the basement. Yeah, it's that's hardcore, man. Yeah. Um, but uh, th- but there's that's just that one dietitian that I've talked to, and there's a couple more there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she's really great. I, yeah, I love collaborating. I mean, we have one patient right now on inpatient rehab and he's just not drinking enough. 
And so we've tried to figure out ways, um, but he's on nectar-thick liquids. <laughs> so we're trying to Found figure, the problem. <laughs> yeah. So we're trying to figure out ways, like, how can we get him to drink more? So, yeah, but uh, it, it's few and far between at that setting. Yeah. They don't really get consulted as much on inpatient rehab, I've noticed. Yeah. It's much more frequent on acute. I feel like they only work the acute floors. Um, well, I think they're only going to get work where they're getting consults. Yeah. So, you know, and that's how that goes. All right. So what would, um, so you've done your eval on your trach patient. Mm-hmm. Now, what do your treatments look like? Just a continuous progression of that initial eval? Yeah. I'll probably do like three evals on them. I'll start with a trach um, eval, so we'll see if they're off the ventilator, can we get them to voice, what's their voice like. So it's a little bit of like passing your valve tolerance and voice um, eval. Then likely they're pretty confused because of ICU ventilator psychosis, so we'll do a speech-language cognitive eval. Um, but in between those two is definitely swallowing, so we'll do a swallow eval. So we're we would see a patient for all three of those things, um, possibly, depending on the patient. So, Um, What about, like, communication boards? If they are not tolerating capping, or not Mm -hmm. capping, but the finger occlusion, the passimere valve, Mm -hmm. like, they're just not tolerating any of that, um, what do you do in the way of, like, communication boards or alternate means? Yeah, I mean, they're pretty low-tech at this hospital. I wish we had more investment in some, like, higher-tech AAC devices for these patients, but um, it is kind of like a board. But a lot of times they're, I mean, so weak that their upper extremities just aren't even strong enough to point to a board. So I've gotten so good at reading lips. I mean, I am (laughs) pretty good at it. (laughs) Yeah. And then just reducing your questions down to yes, no questions. It drives me crazy when I go in there and either the family or like the physician is like asking them like open-ended WH questions. I'm like, Mm -hmm. you're not going to understand what they're saying. Mm -hmm. They don't have their teeth in. They're on a (laughs) ventilator. Like just ask them yes, no questions, you know? So that's how I address it. I mean, I will give out an AAC device because it makes everyone feel good about it, mm-hmm. but they're largely unused as far as I'm concerned. I find that's the case as well often. Yeah. There's the rare patient that is gung-ho about it. But, I, I mean, I, don't, I haven't worked in LTEX. I've not worked with, like, that level of patient that, that week and, uh-huh. and stuff like that. So they, they have a little more oomph yeah. when, by the time I get to them. Yeah. 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 All right. So um, how would SLPs go about increasing their knowledge to work with this population? Um, maybe, maybe they're not working in LTEX, but maybe they'll mm-hmm. get a patient here or there or they want to they want to go work in that try that out maybe they're applying for a job or something in that area I would I would um seek out the pulmonologist at your hospital or the respiratory therapist and ask them to just teach you if that's possible um (laughs) I just broke out in a cold sweat I'm like you want me to do what oh my goodness no (laughs) so I can't tell you how many times I've called to um, we get a new patient at the LTAC, and so I call the speech therapist from the transfer facility and and ask like, so 
they brought a speaking valve with them. How are they tolerating the speaking valve? Oh, we don't do the speaking valve. The respiratory therapists what? do that. Yeah. So I would encourage you if there are speaking valves happening at your hospital that you somehow nudge your way into that process. If you're not the one initially putting it on, fine. I think it's silly that a respiratory therapist is the only one that could do that. Um, but then you need to be brought in for, let's call it voice therapy, you know, mm-hmm. like, but you need to be brought in shortly after, because as soon as they're tolerating that speaking valve for about 15 minutes to a half an hour, that's my trigger to start a bedside and get them eating or drinking. Cause that's basically how long it takes to eat something. Um, we'd like it to be longer. We'd like it to be the whole day. But if they can do a solid half an hour with that valve on, then let's do a bedside and see what we can get them eating. But if you're delayed in that whole process and you're not brought in until they're tolerating that valve throughout the day, you've just wasted however much time. All that swallowing disuse. That's right. Although ideally, maybe they have saliva they could be swallowing during that time. Could be. (laughs) (laughs) That's my one hope. Or that they're getting good oral care from the respiratory therapist. Because do respiratory therapists do oral care? At the LTAX, if you're on the ventilator, you get you, you get scheduled three times a day oral care from the respiratory therapist. Wow. And then when we come in there, it's like an additional one. It's not necessarily ordered, but I mean, what speech therapist doesn't walk in and see like a terrible mouth and not want to do something about it? Yeah, yeah. I totally feel like oral care, for me, it's an important preparatory stage. Oh, like, yeah. if I'm going in there, and especially if it's an eval, and they've been NPO, and then I, I start my oral mech exam, and I'm looking in that mouth, and it's the Sahara, or yeah. it's just like, ugh, it's not looking so well, or they're a little little dozy, little lethargic, I'm like, let's do some oral care, yeah. wake you up, get you ready. That's right. Stimulate everything inside of there for what's coming. Yeah. And I really feel like that's an important part. And, um, and I feel like I've heard... Um, other therapists are like, that's not a skilled, that's not skilled. We shouldn't be doing anything that's not skilled. And I'm like, I mean, I'm not doing oral care for oral care sake right, so right. that they have a clean mouth and they don't get a cavity. Right, right. <laughs> that's not my concern. So, I mean, you could look any which way you want at that topic. but Yeah. Also, I'm not going in there and just cleaning their mouth and leaving. No, yeah, it is part of a process, and you're looking in there, like you can see their dentition, you can see their tongue, if it deviates, or if they have fasciculations, or um, if it engages a swallow, or, I mean, you're looking for things Mm -hmm. while you're doing it. Mm -hmm. Can they do their own oral care? Mm -hmm. Is there, I mean, the amount of gunk that I have pulled from people's mouths, because Nurses or respiratory therapists will just go in there and swish, swish, swish. And in the back, they're like, it's just a thick layer of, like, dry. Oh, along, sick. like, the soft yes. palate and hard palate. Yeah. Yeah, I've had to get, um, like, two tongue depressors and try to use them like tweezers or, like, a clamp to <laughs> just pull, like, like a, a form that has dried along the roof of the Like mouth. a Pringles chip. Yeah. And I'm gagging the whole time because it's gross. And I have, like, I, like, if someone starts doing that, like, retching noise, uh-huh. like, I'm doing it with them. Like, oh, it's the worst. I'm so sensitive to that stuff. I can't, I can't believe I go in people's mouths and I'm like, I'm going to clean this out because I'm, like, grossed out by yeah. it at the same time. Yeah. But, but equally satisfied when you get that whole thing out and it's, like, clean and pretty. I just feel better for them because I know if that was my mouth, mm-hmm. I would just, it's, like... 
Yeah. You know when you brush your teeth in the morning, you're like, now I'm ready to start my day. Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So fresh and so clean, clean. Yeah. Yes. All right. Well, I guess we're ready for a parting thought. Do you feel like we've covered? Yeah. Is there any other things that you could think of that you feel like, well, I don't know, somebody like me <laughs> would benefit from knowing or? I think you know more than what you think you don't know. Um, and I you, almost have an overcase of like awareness of what I don't know, and then I feel like I don't know enough to be safe. Yeah, but I really do know a lot yeah. more than I. And ask a lot of questions. I feel like you know the people who know everything and don't ask questions actually look way dumber than they really are. Mm-hmm. I feel like if you allow, especially a respiratory therapist, to be your educator. It just promotes a great relationship. Yes. It lets them know that you respect them. Mm-hmm. And then you get to really learn about that. Yeah. I, there's this, the, the, the whole realm of respiratory therapy, pulmonology, how it affects uh, voicing, mm-hmm. you know, in this topic, how it affects swallowing is massive. And I, we do a disservice. We don't learn enough about it in school. We barely get to it in our practice. You know, like, I don't know how long I was practicing before I found out that there was um, a, like, standard breathing rate. Like, you shouldn't, like, if you're breathing more than 20 breaths, um, what is it, a second, a minute? I think a minute. Is it the minute? (laughs) Now I'm, like, doubting everything (laughs) I'm saying. I know. It's, um, you're you're not safe to eat or drink. Like, that is too high. Yeah. I didn't know that for the longest time. And then I'm like... Then you just feel like, <laughs> what else do I not know? Yeah. That's putting my patients at risk or me not providing them with the best level of care. Yeah. Um, have you ever gotten, like, some kind of memorable insight from a patient? Like, have they ever kind of, like, said something or interacted with you in some way that... A trach patient? Yeah. I think... Um... There is such thing as ICU psychosis, and there, the patients who have it, um, and they they can stand in both worlds. One world being, I know that wasn't real, um, but at the same time, stand in this different world where it's like that seemed so real, um, and it's. Uh, it's fun to work with those patients who are pretty confused because of their medical state. Um, so that's, so you're saying when they go a little bit crazy, you have fun with that a little bit. Yeah. So my mind is just going in all kinds of places with that information, Jen. Yeah. Like, so one guy was like, I know this didn't happen, but I swear to God, this guy came in my room with a gun. My mom was in here and um, I couldn't talk because I'm, I was on the machine. Like, this is all after we've gotten them on the speaking valve or whatever. Um, and, like, everyone's telling me it didn't happen. Like, it couldn't have happened. But, and I kind of know that it didn't happen. But, I, I mean, I saw it. Like, they were in my room oh, with yeah. a gun. Okay. They yeah. robbed my mom. That's a level of psychosis that I haven't experienced in real life. Yeah. Other than like just your straight up dementia patients. Right. No, these, yeah. No, these aren't, these don't have, these patients don't have underlying dementia. Um, yeah. So the hallucinations are strong. Yes. Because of a lot of factors, because, 
of their medical condition because of the medicine they're taking because their days and nights are totally Mm -hmm. out of place because there's nothing like a changing there's no like uh points at which you notice like it's morning time I'm eating breakfast it's it's all the whole time yeah time just kind of mushes Mm -hmm. together um yeah it's real interesting I don't know if that's a good closing thought I know I'll ask more okay (laughs) do well here here were kind of like my things that you could go with you can pick what you want to do like do you have a word of encouragement for people uh, maybe a, a word of warning or friendly caution mm-hmm. um, or a secret pet peeve that you just want to put out there. I think you kind of mentioned one earlier, though. Which was what? I forgot, but you got really animated about something. You're super passionate about it. About. Um, ENTs, maybe? <laughs> That's the one! You were like, the little prima donnas. Yeah, they are. That's funny. No, um, I think I think you were probably more ticked off by their unwillingness to be a team player. Absolutely. Than anything else. Yeah. That's yeah. the most offensive part I, of that story. The longer I'm in this career, I am both like more respectful respectful of physicians, but also equally like <laughs> you are so human. You're so human and like let me do my job. Like I know what I'm doing. And it bothers me sometimes just like, I know what I'm doing with this patient. Why do I have to go get an order for this? You know, I know it's part of the deal. Um, but, yeah. Yeah. I think that we leave school and having a CFY year and having the support within our uh, profession that we know more um, than we give ourselves credit for. Um yeah. And I, we get overlooked a lot. You know, I feel like there's a big difference between, you know, knowing something and putting it into practice. That's true. And I feel so much more comfortable when I've had that experience. And I feel really comfortable when I have a knowledgeable person standing next to me on my first couple goes. Sure. Yeah. If someone is like, oh, do this, this, and this, you got this, Leanne, like you've demonstrated that you understand the knowledge to me verbally, now go into this patient's room and do it. Like, I get a little bit scared about all the things that could go wrong yeah. or something I might miss or forget. Like, and I just feel so much better when I have that second set of eyes that are standing off to the side, letting me out. Mm-hmm. But like, if I have a question or if I forget something, they can scoot in and be like, man, yeah, check that cuff. Right. Remember <laughs> the cuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, all right. Any other kind of parting thoughts? Um, I don't think LTACs get the credit that they deserve. I also think our role... Oh, here I go. I think, <laughs> There it is. You found it. <laughs> I also think our role in end-of-life care is not as big as it needs to be. Um, I agree, yeah. And a lot of times I have been in a position where the physician has walked in, had a pretty like intimate conversation or what they would consider intimate and detailed about end-of-life care, they leave, and then I'm with the patient, and the patient has all of these questions. Oh, my gosh. How many times have I gotten slammed with, like, high-level medical questions about that patient's care plan? And I'm just like, I would love, like, I want to be able to help you. There is no way I'm qualified to answer any of these questions. Here, let's write them down. Right, <laughs> yeah. Or just, like, help reiterating what the physician said in a more layman's term. I feel like that often falls in our lap. Um, And we have a big role to play in the end-of-life 
care for our patients and families and guiding them through that and what to expect and um, how to educate them without pushing them in a direction. Um, yeah. and I mean, I totally agree with you, but then I'm thinking about it and I'm wondering, like, isn't that kind of like social work's job? Isn't it? I mean, I don't want to, you know, once yeah. again, I never want to be like, that's not my job. I don't want to be that person. But, like, I do think that we need to be consulted more. You know what? I think when people talk about, like, palliative care and hospice care and end-of-life care, they think, well, we're a rehab profession. We want to get things back to function. And right. they're in a place where that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so then we're just, like, a consultive type of level of input. Um, but that that's still so important because we have all that knowledge and we can offer alternatives and solutions and strategies for that person Mm -hmm. to get what they need, what would make them the most comfortable, make them the most happy and fulfilled. If they had a recent video and it shows that they're aspirating thins and it recommended nectar, but they're like, I'd rather not be on nectar. I want to be on thin. Like, that's cool. That's for them. So then like, you just offer other strategies or things to help them. You don't just say, okay, we'll just drink thins. Like, maybe mm-hmm. they're coughing a lot. Mm-hmm. So you could say, like, you could work with them and, and do what you do. Because, like, I can't come up with the things. Because yeah. every patient's going to be different. Every patient's needs are going to be different. You won't know until you go in there and sit down and talk with them. Yeah. I had a patient with ALS, and it was pretty advanced. And you could tell, like... At the bedside, he was not even really tolerating his secretions very well. And so they brought me in to assess his swallow. Well, he was pretty much aspirating everything. And so the physician really wanted to put him... So they were like, okay, we're going palliative. This guy just wants, you know, what he wants. So we should probably put him on honey pureed. Oh, yeah, because that sounds like fun. And so I was like, you know, he's aspirating everything, and all he wants is a Coke with ice chips in it. Like, that's all he wants. Um, And he's going to aspirate the same with thin as he would with honey, so we should go ahead. And I felt like I had had the conversation with the patient. I knew what the patient desired, and I was able to step up to the plate and talk to this physician and and advocate for my patient and he was happy and he died within the week but he had a coke with ice chips in it and I felt like I played a really good part in advocating for that patient um I I'm glad that his last couple of drinks weren't sludgy coke yes me too you know good job Jen yeah thank you and that's the part that is the part of LTAC that I miss like when I don't work at LTAX is that just kind of like you get really close to these patients because they are in the thick of it. I mean, medically, they've been in a hospital for at least two weeks before they've come to you. They are pissed. They are in the middle of trauma. They are in the middle of grief. Their family is in the middle of Mm -hmm. grief. You walk into a room and you have no idea emotionally what's going on in there who is going to get mad at you, not because of anything that you've done. You've maybe never even met the family, but just the whole circle, you're part of that whole circumstance and Mm -hmm. you might get all of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And just to be able to still be a professional and to educate, it's always such a treat when I get that first response. And by the end, when I leave, they are like, thank you so much for taking the time. Like they get it. They come Mm -hmm. around like, yes, um, we took the time 
I just read an article, I'm totally going off script, about um, productivity and how in hospitals it's just not... Oh, yes, that is... Functional. That, like, is a hot poker in my chest about, like, the, the business aspect of healthcare and pushing everybody who works with patients, doctors, nursing staff, all these, ther- all of us, the therapists to see X amount of patients a day and to bill it when a lot of the times the billing isn't set up that way. Right. In outpatient, yeah, I can see that because you are billed per visit. But in acute care, the hospital is paid based on the diagnosis of the patient, not on the types of services that they got necessarily. So, like, when you're a therapist on acute care, like, you know, we we put our bill in for what we did with that patient that day, but we're not going to get X amount of dollars for that treatment for X amount of minutes. That's not how that reimbursement system works. Right. So, by shoving more patients on your caseload and seeing more people doesn't mean the hospital's going to get more money. Right. At least that's my understanding of it. As a ther- from the therapist's perspective. And, yeah, that really gets in my crawl. Like, these people are at their most vulnerable. And I'll be in there when doctors come in their rounds and I got, you know, no bones to pick with a doctor. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I don't know what that life is like and it ain't easy. But they come in, they do their thing, and they leave. And, you know, sometimes the patient is just kind of left still scratching their head. And... um and then, you know, we get in there and we sit down with them and we're talking mm-hmm. with them and we're that's interacting with about, them. Yeah. And that's what they need. And they feel like something was accomplished, even if maybe we didn't make great strides in what we went in there for. Yeah. Like, if we can leave and they're in a better place mentally, that's a win. Because yeah. I think you need that in recovery mm-hmm. through all of it. So. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I was really proud of my one takeaway that I put in that email to you. I was like, you can't take it. Oh, yeah. This one's one's mine. I was like, the one thing I remember, and this is actually from grad school, like way back in the day. They were like, whatever you do, you know, first thing, you know, deflate the cuff. Number two, never stand directly in front of an open stoma. (laughs) It's so good. Yeah. They're like, the things that come out of that, you don't want to be in front of. Yeah. You never know when a cough is going to happen. Yeah. Out of nowhere in a flash, suddenly yeah. you're covered with mucus. Yeah. Makes me want to get one of those, like, face helmets that's, like, just the clear Eye plastic. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's what they wear when they decannulate or change. The respiratory therapists wear the masks with the... Oh, yeah. You better thing. be covering They're every orifice on your, yeah. your body. <laughs> Don't yeah. want any of that near you. All right. Well, those are our parting thoughts. Okay. Now, that article you read about productivity, was that, uh-huh. like, uh, in a, um, I guess I'm trying to ask, was it, like, research-based, like, highbrow literature, or was it, like, article online, like, opinion-based? Opinion-based. By a physician. I think I've seen that making the rounds. BMJ sounds. Probably. And, I like, I'm too scared to read it because it would just, like, send me into a rage. Yeah. And I'm not even a doctor, obviously. Yeah. All right, Jen. Well, let's okay. sign off. Okay. Let's Thanks say, for having me. You're the best. Thank you. Yeah. This was I so good. I want you good. to come to the LTAC where I work. I, do, I will now. <laughs> this is so exciting. Can I just, like, roll up in there? I wonder. I'll find out. I work there tomorrow in the morning. Okay, do. Okay. That would, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, friends, I hope you've enjoyed the conversation that I had with Jen Hurst about that trick and vent population and LTACs. Um, as you probably heard, you know I enjoyed myself. I just love 
pumping people for information, you know, satiating my curiosity and learning something new that I didn't know before. And trust me, in this population, it was quite a lot. So now if you could do me a solid and review us on your listening platform, that will help other listeners find this podcast and get value out of it as well. And um, share it with your colleagues, share it with people that you think would benefit from it. And let me know how that goes. (laughs) Let me know if there's any other topics that you want to hear about more in depth or, you know, just anything. Just let me know. I love feedback and um, I appreciate it. So thanks for listening, everybody. And I'll see you at the next episode.